My name is Judith Pallow. I'm an, an official student of Christ Church, and I'm a colleague of Nigel's. When Nigel asked me to chair this session, I was honoured, but I was also slightly puzzled. I should say I'm from the 1968 generation. I went up to university in the north of England in 1968, and as was befitting for students of those days, I did quite a lot of marching, waving flowers. Uh, I was a feminist, and also I worked on Soviet communism, so a bit of a lefty. So Nigel might reasonably um, have assumed that I would be out of sympathy with the theory of the just war. But I suspect he just doesn't realise how old I am. <laughs> We're now past the halfway mark in this excellent series of lectures. We've looked at the everyday experiences of war, the origins of the First World War, why it happened, and then last week we looked at how it happened. And of course it's now time that we address the question that's been raised in one way or another by all our previous speakers, uh, the question of can it be justified? And I'm sure you'll agree with me that there's no more appropriate person to uh, help us towards answering this question than Nigel. I hope I'm not the only one who has read Nigel's extraordinary, extraordinarily erudite, well-informed and carefully argued book, In Defence of War. Uh, if not, I, I really do recommend it. It's um, a really challenging, excellent read. So just to, in case you don't know who Nigel is, he's the Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology and he's director of the MacDonald Centre. The title of his talk this evening is 1914-18, Was Britain Right to Fight? Thanks very much, uh, Judy. Um, before I, I start to, um, to speak, um, I, I want to conduct a very, very secret poll. Uh, you have three op options, and, and three options only. You may choose one of the following. Britain should have gone to war in 1914, and should have continued to fight until November 1918. Option one. Option two, Britain should have gone to war in 1914, uh, but should have ceased fighting before November 1918. Option two. Option three, Britain should not have fought at all. Those are the three options. Uh, you must choose one of them. <laughs> Remember what you chose. At the end of, uh, at the end of our session, uh, I'm going to ask uh, those of you who've changed your minds to put your hands up. Okay, uh, I'd like to see what, what impact I have. <laughs> Most of all, I want to see if I had the desired impact. We attacked, I think, about 820 strong. I've no official figures of casualties. A friend, an officer in C Company, which was in support and shelled to pieces before it could start, 
told me in hospital that we lost 450 men that day and that after being put in again a day or two later we had 54 left. I suppose it's worth it. Thus wrote R.H. Tawney, then a sergeant in the 22nd Manchester Regiment, later the famous Anglican socialist, friend of William Temple and William Beveridge. Thus wrote Tawney of the action on the Somme on the 1st of July 1916, an action in which he himself was shot in the stomach and lay wounded in no man's land for 30 hours. The Battle of the Somme has since become a byword for criminally disproportionate military slaughter. In their assault on the German trenches, the British, which at that time and in that place included the Southern Irish and the Newfoundlanders, the British suffered 57,470 casualties on the first day, of which 19,240 were fatalities. The battle, which began in July, carried on for over four months into November. At its end, British losses amounted to 419,654 killed, wounded, missing and taken prisoner. The French, because the French fought too, lost an additional 202,567. And the gain for this appalling cost an advance of about six miles. How can such dreadful slaughter possibly be justified, not to mention a war that repeatedly involved such slaughter? That's one of the main questions that we're going to have to find a satisfactory answer to if we're going to be able to say that Britain was right to go to war in August 1914 and to stay at war until November 1918. In order to work out some answers to those and other questions, I'm going to deploy some of the criteria developed by the Christian tradition of just war reasoning. This is the tradition uh, that runs from Augustine of Hippo in the early 5th century, through Thomas Aquinas in the 13th, Grotius in the 17th, and on to Paul Ramsey and others in the 20th centuries. Before I explain the criteria, however, let me make a few remarks about the hinterland assumptions, the assumptions that lie behind them. According to some contemporary moral philosophers, the paradigm of just war is self-defence. That might be true of versions of just war thinking that take their cue from Thomas Hobbes or from the UN Charter, but it's not true of the Christian tradition. In that tradition, the paradigm of just war is not self-defense. It's the vindication of the innocent and the correlative punishment of those who are doing the innocent harm Another important feature of Christian thinking about these matters is that a just war is not a Manichaean holy war. A just war is not a holy war. 
waged by the simply righteous against the simply unrighteous. It's waged by one set of sinners against another. So it doesn't pretend to cleanse the earth of evil. It doesn't aspire to usher in H.G. Wells's utopia of a warless world. Unmessianically, it only aims to stop a particular outbreak of grave wrongdoing in its tracks, to reverse it, and to rectify it. Accordingly, a just war is not a morally flawless war. Rather, it is justified, all things considered. So the fact that President Roosevelt probably lied to the American people twice in order to win their support for entry into the Second World War against Hitler does not by itself make America's subsequent belligerency unjustified. There's a moral flaw in the Allied prosecution of war against Hitler. A single flaw doesn't render the whole enterprise unjustified. It might do, but it needn't. Nor, arguably, does the immoral carpet bombing of German cities by the RAF, or the rape of perhaps two million German women by Soviet troops. A just war need not be, probably won't be, a morally uh, flawless war. So those are some of the, the, the background assumptions uh, to the Christian notion of just war. Now let me um, explain the criteria themselves, or at least those four criteria that uh, engage the case of Britain's belligerency in 1914-18 to 18 most directly. First of all, and basically, in order to be just, a cause for war must be made up of some grave injustice. One may not go to war in order to raise a situation from tolerably good to better. War is a very hazardous, a very costly and destructive business, and it may only be incurred in order to rectify a wrong that is intolerable. In other words, uh, some injustice is worth bearing without going to war. A cause for, a just cause for war, must comprise an intolerable injustice. Second, this intolerable grave injustice can be a mere pretext for war. In other words, there may be an injustice here, I go to war, but not really to rectify the injustice, but to exploit it in order to expand my empire, for example. So the cause can be just a pretext. Therefore, the second criterion is that in order to be just, Belligerency must intend, first and foremost, to rectify the injustice. That must be its primary intention. And in order to remain justified, that must continue to be its primary intention throughout the war. To be just, belligerency must intend to rectify the injustice and not use it as a pretext for something else. Third, before embarking on it, political leaders must consider whether war is proportionate. Proportionate. 
Now, this criterion of proportionality is, is a controversial and difficult one. It's often thought to require a so-called weighing up of goods and evils, resulting in the calculation that the goods outweigh the evils. No, the goods outweigh the evils. The problem with this is that the goods and evils involved in war, as indeed in most uh, other cases, the goods and evils involved are of such radically different kinds that there is no rational way to measure them against each other. So, for example, uh, regime change in Berlin in 1945 liberated millions from the threat of murder and the fact of slavery, and that was good. But it cost the lives of tens of millions of others, somewhere between 60 and 85 million if we include the war in the Far East. And that was very bad. I know of no rational way of telling whether the goods outweighed the evils. I don't think that the liberation of some compensates for the death of others. And I make that last remark uh, with a particular scene in my mind. Um, some of you may have read uh, the, the memoir of Geoffrey Wellham, who was a, a Battle of Britain pilot. And he published his memoir um, under the title First Light about eight years ago. And I think the BBC then, then dramatised um, his um, account of his own experience of the Battle of Britain. And at the end of this uh, uh, dramatisation, uh, the real Geoffrey Wellham appears, uh, staring out over the iconic white cliffs. And he says, Was it worth it? All those young chaps, all those young chaps I knew who never came back, was it worth it? I don't know. I'm still struggling with that. Now you might wonder, is he saying perhaps we shouldn't have fought Hitler? I doubt it. But I think he is saying that what was lost is without compensation. The deaths of those young men, 19, 20, 21, is an absolute loss for which nothing compensates. There's no way, there's no way up here. So it may be that the war against Hitler was still justified, but not in those terms. In a sense, the question, what it, was it worth it, is an unanswerable question. So I don't think that proportionality can mean a greater quantity of good over evil. But if it can't mean that, then what on earth does it mean? Well, I suggest three things. It means that the injustice one intends to rectify through war is grave enough to warrant war's dreadful costs. Grave enough. So no pretense to any precision here. It also means that war is an apt means for achieving one's intended political end. Uh, it means that it's not counterproductive. And it also means, third, that the costs of war are affordable, materially and politically. So in these senses, in these latter three senses, uh, for the launching of war to be just, it has to be proportionate. 
Finally, the final uh, criterion, uh, once war is launched, military commanders must also proportion military means to military ends. That is, not incur military or civilian casualties unnecessarily, inefficiently or wantonly. That is, the means of waging war have to be proportionate and not just the war itself. So, so there you've got four criteria. Just cause, right intention, both on the eve of war and throughout the war, proportion in going to war, and proportion in the waging of it. Now, for those of you who know uh, just war reasoning, you're aware that there are other criteria, um, but these are the four, I think, that bear most directly on the case of Britain's belligerency in 1914-18. So enough, enough introduction to the tools. Let me, let me take these moral considerations and apply them to the case uh, um, before us. Did Britain have just cause and right intention in going to war in 1914? First of all, what was the grave injustice that needed rectifying? If you've been reading the newspapers lately, you will have picked up that historians disagree about who to blame most for the escalation of war from its Balkan beginnings into a continental and then global conflagration. Until very recently, a dominant consensus endorsed the uh, 1960s thesis of Fritz Fischer. And you've heard Fischer's name mentioned at least once or if not twice in the last uh, three lectures. Fischer's thesis is, or, uh, or was, that it is ultimately in Berlin that we must seek the keys to the destruction of peace. Germany willed a local war between Austria, Hungary and Serbia, deliberately risked a continental war against France and Russia, and finally actually started one. Whereas all the European powers contributed to the growth of tension in the pre-1914 decade, the fundamental contention of the Versailles War Guilt, war guilt Article was justified. That's Fischer's view. And this view prevailed even among German historians until about 12 months ago. In the past 12 months, uh, Christopher Clarke's book, The Sleepwalkers, about which I suspect many of you have heard, has challenged this prevailing consensus. Clarke concludes his account of the outbreak and escalation of the war by saying that there is no smoking gun in this story, or rather, there is one in the hand of every major character. The outbreak of war was a tragedy, not a crime. The crisis that brought war in 1914, he tells us, in his, book, in his book's final ringing sentence, the crisis that brought war in 1914 was the fruit of a shared political culture which rendered Europe's leaders sleepwalkers, watchful but unseeing, haunted by dreams, yet blind to the reality of the horror they were about to bring into the world. I'm not persuaded by Clark's argument, not because of its history, but because of its ethics. For one thing, he is wrong, I think, to draw a sharp distinction between tragedy and crime, as if they're always mutually exclusive alternatives. 
It seems to me that crime, or better in this case, wrongdoing, because we're not talking about an offence against positive law, we're talking about, uh, if anything, an offence against moral law, wrongdoing often has a tragic dimension. Human beings do make free moral choices, but often our freedom is somewhat fated by forces, social, psychic, cultural, beyond our control. That certainly makes the estimation of moral guilt difficult, but it needn't make it impossible. So the fact that tragedy attended the decisions that led to war in 1914 doesn't mean that those decisions, or some of them, weren't also culpable. So my first objection to Clark is, oftentimes it's not a choice between tragedy and crime. Often the two overlap. Second, Clark assumes that because blame was widespread, it was shared equally. Were the Serbs wrong to seek to unify Serbdom? He asks rhetorically. Were the Austrians wrong to insist on the independence of Albania? Was one of these enterprises more wrong than the other? The question is meaningless, he says. I disagree. I have no trouble with the proposition that Serbia and St. Petersburg and Vienna were culpable as well as Berlin. By the way, not many people point the finger at Paris or London. So I have no trouble with the notion that blame was shared. Still, I don't see why, given apt tools of moral analysis, one can't discriminate between states, reckoning some more culpable than others. The fact that blame spread is wide does not make it even. Fortunately, the task I've set myself uh, this evening is not the hugely complicated one of apportioning blame for the First World War as a whole. That is a complicated task, with so many agents involved. My more modest task is to decide whether or not the British government was justified in going to war in August 1914 and staying at war. And that involves making a moral judgment about Germany's invasion of Belgium, Luxembourg and France, because without that invasion, Britain would not have fought. So, why did Germany invade? She invaded because she feared that France would attack in support of Russia. According to just war reasoning, however, the mere threat of attack is no just cause for war. Only if there is substantial evidence that a threat is actually in the process of being realised would the launching of preemptive war be justified. It is not justified to launch a preventative war simply because you fear an attack might materialise. That's, that's an important distinction. So the idea is um, war is too destructive to launch on a speculative ground, that's, that your enemy at some point might decide to attack you and it's better you attack them first. Uh, the attack must be in the process of being implemented. You don't, you don't have to wait until they cross the border, uh, but you have to be quite sure that they're about to attack you. So, preemptive war is justified, but not preventative war. In August 1914, France was not intending to attack Germany, and nor, of course, was Belgium. Indeed, France deliberately kept one step behind Germany in her military preparations 
so as to make her defensive posture unmistakable. And as late as the 1st of August, France reaffirmed the order for her troops to stay 10 kilometers back from the Franco-Belgian border. Notwithstanding this, Germany declared war on France on the 3rd of August on the trumped-up pretext that French troops had crossed the border and French aircraft had bombed Nuremberg, neither of which was true. In feeling the need to trump up a pretext at all, Germany paid lip service to the moral authority of international justice. Considerations of justice, however, had little role in the formulation of military policy. That was dominated instead by a social Darwinism that had become the prevailing orthodoxy among the German general staff, and especially its chief, Helmut von Moltke the Younger. For the German high command, international relations were about the struggle for survival, and so the dominance of ethnic nations, and war was the natural way of deciding it. At the War Council of the 8th of December 1912, von Moltke pressed the view that a European war was inevitable, and that as far as Germany was concerned, the sooner it happened, the better. Because the, the longer time passed, the more the odds would be stacked against Germany. For Moltke's policy of preventative war, if not his view, came to prevail. 20 months later, when both Kaiser Wilhelm and his Chancellor Beckmann Holbeck got cold feet over the prospect of a continental war and called on Austria to halt its invasion, and seek terms with Serbia, von Moltke bypassed the Chancellor and urged the Chief of the Austrian General Staff to mobilise against Russia, promising him that Germany would follow suit. Later that evening, von Moltke persuaded Beethoven Holbeck to decide on general mobilisation regardless of Russian equivocation. Two days later, Germany declared war on Russia. It was the German government, dominated by its military leadership, that launched a preventative war against France and Belgium in August 1914. Why? Because they took it for granted that war is the natural way of deciding the balance of international power. Because they foresaw that the longer the next war was delayed, the longer would be the odds against Germany's victory. And because, and here I quote uh, the LSE's David Stevenson, because the memory of 1870, the Franco-Prussian War, still nurtured through annual commemorations in the cult of Bismarck, had addicted the German leaders to sabre-rattling and to military gambles, which had paid off before and might do so again. Germany's leaders were not sleepwalkers, but fully conscious moral agents, making decisions according to their best lights in a volatile situation of limited visibility. In such circumstances, in such a fog, which is not at all unusual, error was forgivable. Not forgivable, however, was their subscription to the creed of a Darwinist realpolitik, whose cynicism about human motives owes more, more to Hobbes' anthropology than to Darwin's science and which robbed their political and military calculating of any moral bottom line beyond that of national survival through dominance. It seems to me that it's quite natural for a nation not to want to see diminished its power to 
to realize its intentions in the world. That's quite natural. But if social Darwinism thinks it natural for a nation to launch a preventative war simply to forestall the loss of its dominance, just war reasoning doesn't think it right. Just cause must consist of an injustice, be it actualized or actualizing, and Germany had suffered none. In Britain, a majority of the government's cabinet was against entering the fray until the 2nd of August. Till that point, uh, the British government was disinclined to get involved. The Entente Cordiale with France formally committed the British only to consult with the French in case of a threat to European peace and did not automatically commit it, commit Britain, to activate uh, the joint military contingency plans. Although Edward Grey, the Foreign Secretary, uh, did argue strongly that Britain was morally obliged to come to France's aid. But what eventually swung the cabinet in favour of war on the 4th of August was Germany's violation of Belgian neutrality. In British minds, Belgium conjured up a variety of altruistic just causes, honouring a treaty to guarantee Belgian independence, punishing a violator of the treaty, and defending the rights of small nations. Now, of course, it also involved Britain's national interest in its own security, since the Belgian coast faced London and the Thames estuary, and it had therefore long been British policy to keep that coastline free from hostile control to prevent invasion and preserve command of the sea. It is true, therefore, that in rising to Belgium's defence, the British also sought to forestall a German domination of Europe that they found menacing. However, not all national interests are immoral. Not all national interests are immoral. National governments have a moral responsibility to take care of the legitimate interests of their peoples, and security against unwarranted attack by an aggressive power is among these. So the British cabinet's concern to keep the continental coast of the Channel out of the hands of an aggressively expansionist Germany was, it seems to me, quite reasonable. But what is morally crucial is that Britain did not initiate a preventative war to maintain a favourable balance of power. Germany had suffered no injustice, nor was she under any actually emergent threat of suffering one. Unprovoked, she launched a preventative invasion of France and Belgium to assert and establish her own dominance. In response, Britain went to war to maintain international order by vindicating the treaty guaranteeing Belgian independence and by resisting its violator, as well as to fend off a serious and actualised threat to its own national security, in which it had a legitimate interest. In so doing, she did, I think, have both just cause and right intention. Notwithstanding all this, given what we now know of the appalling cost of resisting Germany, it's reasonable to wonder whether it was disproportionate. In other words, would it not have been better for Belgium, France, Russia and Britain to suffer German domination instead of resisting it? How bad would domination really have been? Judging by the peace programme of war aims framed by Bethmann Holbeck in September 1914, 
And judging by the terms of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk imposed on Russia in 1917, German domination would have been, how shall I put it, seriously oppressive. According to the programme, Germany would annex Luxembourg, Liège and Antwerp and Belgium, and the Brie along the iron ore field, the fortresses of the Haute de Meuse, the western Vosges mountains, and probably the Channel coast from Dunkirk to Boulogne in France. In addition, France was to be subjected to a crippling indemnity that would prevent rearmament for 20 years and to a commercial treaty that would make it economically dependent on Germany. Belgium was to become a vassal state under military occupation and economically a German province. Although the September programme was not an authoritative policy statement, it was actually moderate in comparison with the more extreme annexationism of the military and the circles around the Kaiser. Certainly the peace terms it envisaged for France were actually less harsh than those actually imposed on Russia in 1917. At Brest-Litovsk, Russia was made to sign, over, sign away over a third of her population, much of her heavy industry and coal production and her best agricultural land. In addition, we may take, I think, the atrocious behaviour of the German military towards civilians in 1914 as expressive of a brutal ruthlessness that would have characterised post-war German domination, especially in those regions subjected to military occupation. As uh, my former colleagues at uh, Trinity College Dublin, John Horne and Alan Kramer, have recently shown, it was German military policy to use civilians as human shields in combat, to burn villages in collective reprisal for resistance, and to shoot local irregulars who were caught bearing arms. Between August and October 1914, well over 6,000 civilians were deliberately killed by German troops in France and Belgium, and a further 23,000 forcibly deported to German prison camps. Uh, I also note if you've been reading the uh, Sunday papers recently, you may have read uh, some reviews of John Lewis Temple's account. Uh, uh, I think it's called The War Behind the Wire. It's an account of the experience of British prisoners of war in German prison camps during the First World War. And he reports that even discounting those captives who died of war wounds, during certain periods of the First World War, British soldiers were less likely to survive a German prison camp than they were the front lines. He also reports that as many as 50,000 Allied troops and civilians perished as slaves uh, behind the front line. Now, I don't know how reliable an historian Lewis Temple is. He's not a professional historian. His books have received uh, good reviews in the newspapers, for what it's worth. Um, I will add, however, that uh, one question that needs to be answered there is to what extent British prisoners of war suffered in Germany because of the Allied blockade, which caused uh, a widespread shortage of food in Germany. Still, had Russia, France and Britain not resisted in 1914, there is good reason to suppose, I think, that Germany would have dominated Western and Eastern Europe in such a rapacious and ruthless manner as to have stoked widespread resentment among its newly subject peoples and high alarm among the newly menaced British. 
Domination of this kind would have ushered in an era of civil unrest and even more acute international tension. Moreover, as Stevenson says, given the cult of Bismarck and the crushing success of the victories of 1866 against Austria and 1870 against France, quote, if Germany had again won quickly in 1914, as it probably would have done if Britain had stayed out, the temptation to further gambles would have been stronger than ever. In short, I conclude, non-resistance in 1914 would have produced neither a just peace nor a long one. Now, it's true, of course, that had Britain stayed out of the war as Niall Ferguson argues it should have done, had Britain stayed out of the war, she wouldn't have suffered German occupation or domination in the way that France and Belgium would have. Britain would only have suffered a heightened threat to her security, and arguably that would have been tolerable and preferable to the horrendous costs of resistance. But what Ferguson's reading doesn't take into account is Britain's responsibility as the still preeminent great power for maintaining international law and order and for the vindication of the unjustly invaded and grievously exploited. Hobbesian realpolitik might sanction Britain's abandoning the Belgians and the French to their fate. I don't think that Christian just war reasoning does sanction that. A good case can be made, uh, therefore, that Britain had just cause and right intention in going to war against Germany in 1914, and that her going to war was proportionate. But was this cause, in fact, her main motive for continuing to fight the war all the way until November 1918? Did Britain continue to fight with the right intention of reversing Germany's unjust aggression, or did she come to use the just cause as a pretext for waging her own aggressive war of continental domination. And this, you may remember, was the substance of Siegfried Sassoon's famous protest in 1917, that Britain's original war aims of self-defence and Belgian and French liberation could have been achieved by negotiation, and that what had begun as a war of self-defence was being deliberately prolonged into a war of conquest. That's what Sassoon claimed. Was Siegfried Sassoon right? Could Britain have negotiated a sufficiently just peace and stopped the dreadful slaughter before 1917? It seems not. Germany showed no sign of being willing to return Belgium or France to the status quo ante until October 1918. In the winter of 1915-16, when it was quite clear that the war was not going to end any time soon, there was an informal diplomatic exchange between Germany and Belgium in which Germany demanded Belgium's alignment with German foreign policy, Belgian disarmament, German occupation and transit rights, a coastal naval base, and German majority shareholding in Belgian railways. At the end of 1916, that's to say at the end of the Somme, which, although it cost the British previously, uh, really shook the Germans. At the end of 1916, instead of being chastened by the summer's military emergency, Hindenburg and Ludendorff actually chose to expand their annexationist claims. In April 1917, the Kaiser and the German High Command endorsed the secret statement of German war aims known as the Kreuznach Programme, according to which Germany would annex Longvibrier and Luxembourg and hold Liège and the Flanders coast for at least a century. 
Even as late as September 1918, Germany still resisted surrendering Belgium. Only in early October 1918 did Germany offer to enter peace negotiations on the basis of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, the seventh of which required Belgium to be evacuated and restored. In sum, then, there is no evidence that Britain could have secured satisfactory peace terms before October 1918, if you accept that to be satisfactory, the peace terms would at least have had to involve uh, a German relinquishing of uh, Belgian and French territory. Siegfried Sassoon himself admitted in 1945 that, and I quote, in the light of subsequent events, it is difficult to believe that a peace negotiated in 1917 would have been permanent. It is even more difficult, I think, to believe that remotely acceptable peace terms were actually on offer. A war can have just cause, rightly intend to stop and reverse injustice, be proportionate in offering belligerent resistance, and yet still be disproportionate in its chosen means of resistance. So here we are at the fourth criterion. Whatever the rights and wrongs of Britain's going to war in 1914, it was the massive number of casualties suffered for no obviously significant military gain that shocked Britons then and still shocks us today. Above all else, this is what damns the war in the eyes of many, the apparently futile industrial-scale slaughter and the general's dogged, criminally callous persistence in it. And of this, the Battle of the Somme, especially the first day, is the epitome. Now, before I, I launch into this last phase of, of my argument, uh, I want to ta take a, a real straw poll. Um, would you raise your hand if you reckon that overall the Allied prosecution of the war against Hitler in 1939-45 was justified? Overall. I'm not going to count them, but clearly a substantial majority. Okay, would you raise your hand if, all things considered, you think the Allied prosecution of the war against Hitler was unjustified? Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, the argument that follows will, will um, have leverage with those of you who think the war against Hitler was justified. Because the argument has, will have general form if you think that war was worth those costs, what's your problem with the First World War? That's, that's the general form of the argument. But for those of you who don't think the Second World War was justified, uh, this is not going to have any impact on you. <laughs> well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect it to have any impact on you. So let's start with the numbers. The war against Wilhelmine Germany cost Britain and its empire 1,114 914 military deaths. This was a dreadful, unprecedented, and mercifully unsurpassed cost. And when compared to the 568-200 British and Imperial deaths in the longer-lasting Second World War, the costs of Britain's belligerency in 1914-18 looks profligate. But appearances deceive. The casualties suffered by the other major combatants in the First World War were far higher than Britain's. 
And her casualty figures in the war of 1939 to 45 were flattered by the fact that we never fought on the front that was decisive in breaking Hitler's armies. That was in the East, where the Soviet Union suffered the deaths of 10,700,000 troops. We got off lightly in the Second World War. That's why the figures look so relatively low. Nevertheless, Britain's losses in 1914 to 18 were appalling. Why? Well, this, of course, is a highly controversial question to which the most popular answer since the late 1960s is simple, military incompetence and callousness. Contemporary military historians, however, tend to be more forgiving, as you will notice that Gary Sheffield was last week. And Sheffield's view is, I think, typical of military historians now. A measure of incompetence was inevitable when British officers trained to command small colonial forces found themselves having to learn to manage millions. What's more, they were compelled to take the offensive against an invader at a stage of technological development that smiled upon defence, coming after the mass production of machine guns, but before the mass production of tanks, and more importantly, before the development of the creeping artillery barrage, of sound-ranging techniques in counter-battery fire, and of wireless communications. The United States, it seems to me, was very fortunate indeed to have staged its civil war in the 1860s. If it had waited 50 years, technology alone would have raised its 600,000 fatal casualties into the millions. Without doubt, the feature of military conduct during the First World War that most excites moral indignation is attrition. The tactic or strategy of wearing down the enemy's forces faster than he wears down one's own. And to some, to many, this seems a boneheaded way, way of waging war, and one immorally profligate and so disproportionate in spending and wasting the lives of one's own troops. But I think that appearances deceive here too. Wearing down the enemy is a reasonable aim of military endeavour in situations where a decisive breakthrough can't be achieved, and this needn't be done carelessly. It can be done efficiently in a manner least expensive to one's own side. Uh, in the Second World War, uh, as you will probably all know, uh, General Montgomery was famously popular with his troops. Why? because he was known to be very careful in spending their lives. Nevertheless, during a crucial attritional phase of the Battle of El Alamein, Major General Freiburg held a briefing conference in which he communicated Montgomery's orders to Brigadier John Curry, commander of the 9th Armoured Brigade, and here I quote from Barry Pitt's account. The task for 9th Armoured Brigade was so obviously one of difficulty and danger that when Curry's time came to make comment, he rather diffidently suggested that by the end of the day, his brigade might well have suffered 50% casualties. To this, Freyberg reply, replied with studied nonchalance, perhaps more than that, the army commander, Montgomery, is prepared to accept up to 
A military commander can be careful of his men's lives and still engage in attrition, as did Montgomery on that occasion to decisively successful effect. During the First World War, British generals and government ministers strove to find ways to break the stalemate in the Western Front and overcome the need for prolonged attritional warfare. That's why the ill-fated Gallipoli campaign was launched in 1915, to try and open up a new, more mobile front in Southeast Europe. That's why Douglas Haig was so quick to champion the development of the tank. It's also why Haig persisted in planning for a dramatic breakthrough in the Western Front in July 1916, long after others had concluded that it couldn't be achieved. And that's, as I understand, that, that is the terrible irony about Haig. We, we think of him as being um, um, complacently, callously, unimaginatively committed to this boneheaded uh, slogging match, this attrition. Whereas in fact, um, certainly on the first day of the Somme and in subsequent battles too, it was his refusal to settle for attrition, his uh, um, persistence in planning for breakthrough that resulted in uh, the dissipation of the impact of artillery in the front line. On the, on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, he had the, his artillery uh, batter German lines way back to the third line. As a consequence, the impact on the front line was, was diminished. One reason why the German defences were not destroyed. So the, the terrible irony is that, it, that Haig's fault, if it was one, was not to settle for attrition. Besides those who damn British generals for waging attritional war and tolerating high casualty rates for months on end, have to reckon with the fact that the undisputed turning point in the later war against Hitler, the Battle of Stalingrad, was horrifically attritional, its human cost rivaling that of the Great War battles. Uh, the Soviet casualties in the Battle of Stalingrad amounted to 1.1 million, of which half a million were dead. Critics must also take on board the fact that on the merciful few occasions in the Second World War, when British troops found themselves bogged down in near-static fighting, hill to hill in Italy and hedge to hedge in Normandy, they reverted to the attritional tactics of 1917. And that casualty rates in the 1944-45 campaign in Northwest Europe equaled and sometimes exceeded those in the Western Front in 1914-18. So, to conclude. In my judgment, all things considered, Germany's war against, uh, Britain's war against Germany in 1914-18 was morally justified. It had just cause, the unprovoked, preventative German invasion of Belgium and France. Britain's intention both ad bellum, both before it went to war and in the process of fighting war in Bello, was to uphold international law, to fulfil a moral obligation to an invaded ally, and to expel an expansionist invader who would not countenance voluntary evacuation until October 1918. Britain's belligerency was proportionate ad bellum, that's to say, uh, proportionate, um, Britain's, Britain's decision to go to war was proportionate in that the failure to resist Germany would have resulted in, what can we say, serious oppression in Belgium, Luxembourg and France, the entrenchment on the Belgian and French coasts of a direct threat to British security, 
Germany's confirmation in bad habits of military aggression and a consequently fragile peace. Yes, Britain's belligerency was sometimes disproportionate in the course of waging war, where military strategy and tactics adopted were more expensive of troops' lives than necessary. And yes, sometimes the generals, not least Haig, should perhaps have known better. But war, even when just overall, is only ever waged by imperfect human beings. And strenuous efforts were made, not least by Haig, to render attrition ever more efficient and to overcome the need for it altogether by making a decisive breakthrough, as was eventually achieved in 1918. Meanwhile, the enormous costs in men and materiel were in fact affordable because they were in fact afforded. And in that sense, the manner of Britain's waging war was proportionate. It's absolutely true, as Richard Evans wrote in last July's Guardian, that Britain's awfully expensive efforts in the First World War failed to usher in perpetual peace. But no war can be expected to do that, not in 1918, not in 1945, not in 1989. At most, a justified war can stop a particular manifestation of serious wrongdoing in its tracks and open up a space for something better. So while it doesn't mark the end of history, November 1918 does mark an important provisional victory of justice, and for that it deserves our grateful commemoration and in that chastened sense, celebration, alongside our lamentation that justice should ever warrant such dreadful costs. That's what I think. Thank you very much. <laughs>